Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. The hour is grave. France is in peril. There are those who despise our country, its traditions, its culture, and want to see it dissolve by tearing away its past and its history. It is no longer time to procrastinate, otherwise tomorrow, civil war will put an end to this growing chaos, and the deaths for which you will be responsible will be counted in the thousands. Those are the words of 20 retired French generals who back in May wrote this open letter, sparking shockwaves throughout the country. My name is Stephen Edgington, and in this interview, I'll be speaking to the French journalist Anne-Elizabeth Moutet about France's ongoing culture war, the French presidential election next year, and the potential threat Macron poses to a post-Brexit Britain. There's many commentators who argue that the culture wars are an Anglo phenomenon. They only affect Britain, America, English-speaking countries. Is France going through a similar war? I think France is partly cushioned, but only partly because the true cultural wars are being waged in English so that ordinary people only get, you know, details of it through mediation, through newspapers and and through things that here and there they hear about and what they hear about they don't like. So you've got the sort of two parallel worlds. The now the French are all using the expression woke, en français, le woke. There's pushback even from the mainstream French left. Not all of it, but if you look at intellectual magazines, if you look at, well, semi-intellectual magazines, news magazines, we do news magazines, we don't do Sunday papers, there's a reaction against, very strong reaction against the idea that the French constitution is wrong and there are no races among human beings. There's a pushback because the whole notion of the republic, uh, the whole notion of the neutrality of the public space, which is what laïcité is, says everyone can be able to have their religion freely, but that religion has nothing to do with the state. We don't have an established church like, for instance, Britain, and we certainly do not have God on our banknotes. It is incredible how everything starts to be injected, and apart from the universities, and there are certain type of intellectuals, but not all of all of them. You've got the usual cravenness of corporate world who've decided that they don't want bad publicity. And they're as stupid in France as they are somewhere else and will apologize for things. But I don't think it's finished yet. I think specificity of France and this sheer thin, simple problem that imported from America is not always a success in France. And the fact that we have an entirely different history is something that, that pushes back. And we, we're just off looking at this. There was a letter, and I'm going to talk about this a lot in this interview, that's absolutely fascinating. In May, a group of retired generals published an open letter in a French magazine which said that the country was heading towards civil war. They said France was in peril. They warned of suburban hordes who were going to cause the deaths of thousands of French people. And they basically blamed anti-racist campaigners 
for this coming civil war. What was the reaction like in France when I, this letter I, was published? I really, I really think you've got that thing completely wrong. It was a, a carefully worded letter with, you know, the strong view that what is destroying France is not so much the work wars, but the fact that there's complete permissiveness and, and toleration of essentially small crime that leading to bigger crimes, and, and the fact that the government is not, hand, and successive governments have been handling this very badly. I don't think so much they were talking about the culture wars. I think they were talking about the fact that we've got minorities in France that have been, those coming from uh, uh, mostly Africa have not been integrated as well as, say, the Portuguese, the Chinese, the Vietnamese, and the others, in a country that doesn't want to have ethnic statistics for perfectly good historical reasons, which was the, during the occupation, the, uh, the, the statistics on Jews, leading to an extremely useful database for the Nazis. But what the generals are saying was essentially that the country was not governed, that the country was, not, was accepting too much was not able to, to cope against crime and that not coping against crime and not coping against uh, the disintegration of the political world, which is something entirely different and not really caused by wokeness, was something that one day would lead to dangerous situation. And when people willfully misunderstood the, the, the conclusion, the conclusion said, when the civil war comes, we, will, we, we shall be called to, to stop it, which is actually in the constitution. What they were saying is we do not want to be there, the army called in something that good policy and good statescraft could be, could be sort of, you know, taken care of right now. That's what they were saying. It was not reported entirely like that. And, and certainly I would say that among that crowd, you certainly had people who were thinking exactly more or less as you were describing. And if you put the war culture wars to those generals, they will certainly tell you that this is complete nonsense. But it was not because they were, the culture wars are not so big in France as they are somewhere else. That's, that, I think, is really important. I suppose my point wasn't necessarily linking this to the culture wars. I'm just saying that the wider debate in France is at a, an extreme compared to in the UK and in America. I mean, this idea of civil war to me seems as I say, extreme to, you know, they're talking about thousands of people dying. And obviously you're linking that in with the immigration policies, the Islamist attacks in France, which is what the letter was obviously referring to. One of the th interesting things about this letter was that 73% of people in France, according to one poll, agreed with its conclusion that France was disintegrating. So why do French people, why are they so depressed about France's potential future? Well, the first thing is that the French are always depressed. We are historically polled as being the country where people complain the most about the horrible, terrible, no good life they have in, in Paris and the provinces. It's, it's a bit of French exaggeration. It's a bit of French history. What we see as civil war is possibly the breakdown of law and order in small bits. Certainly you have 73% of the French who've either had you know, their car stolen or the car of somebody stolen or just keyed in the street or, you know, had been pickpocketed in the metro or uh, have seen numerous instances in which the society became more violent than it used to be. And there's also an acceptance, especially by what's perceived as the attitude of the laxist attitude of the justice system, that this is not punished. I was fascinated recently to see, you know, colleagues, people from the BBC and from newspapers and coming to France and saying that, you know, there are things that happen in broad daylight that wouldn't happen in Britain, such as drug dealing inside Paris, uh, such as uh, literally sort of this whole neighborhood at the northeast of Paris that is right now plagued with crack users who steal stuff, break stuff, live in the street, do others unpleasant things in the streets. If you file, you know, essentially sort of people uh, relieving themselves in the street, whether in drug dealers or just uh, party goers on the Champs-Élysées on a Saturday night at 3 a.m. It's something that brings the idea, uh, false or not false, that the country is falling apart. There's also an entirely different attitude to the French state that the, the British have. And we don't especially like the bureaucracy. We don't like the civil service, but we have very long tradition. And you're going to say Napoleon, but it really goes to King uh, Philippe Auguste. So it goes really a long time ago. And the whole thing is that the centralized state is unpleasant. It will tax us. 
but things will work. And th when things do not work, and we've had various examples of this, I've spoken about sort of, you know, the feeling of breakdown of everyday life in, in small matters, but there's also things like COVID and the appallingly bad handling of our government right in the beginning. When the state breaks down, it is much more of a problem for the French than it is for certainly Americans who are sort of, you know, resourceful people, and certainly more than the British, where the, the social uh, compact exists at the level of uh, ordinary people much more than it does in France. In France, we really have this top-down relationship to the state. Uh, the state is failing us, and the state is seen as failing us because, you know, I still have medical coverage, I still have all sorts of things, it's a bit frayed at the edges, but it's not the NHS, for instance. But the state is perceived by the French as failing us, and the state is also perceiving as not really having a strong ethos anymore. We had a Republican ethos and Republican morals that when I was a child was still taught in primary school, cours de morale. And all of this has disappeared. And you can say, well, you know, there's always a generation that says that the previous generation was better, which it wasn't. But the perception is reality in, 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 in everything, in politics, but in everything. And that's, that's also that. Finally, when people are angry and there's no way to express yourself, unions do not have power in France, for instance, then you have the, the gilet jaune. That's been both an expression of frustration and also it's been a breakdown because it lasted for 18 months. And by the time it had reached, you know, six months, it was mostly disorder in the street with people breaking stuff and stealing stuff. Can you talk about some of the divisions in France? And, you know, British viewers probably haven't focused too much on, they may have seen the Gilets Jaunes protests, they may have seen this, this letter published by these generals, but they don't really understand, I mean, I don't really understand the cultural divisions in France. Is it a class thing? Is it a generational thing? Is it an immigration thing? Is it a religious thing? Where are the divisions coming from? Considering we were a Marxist country, it's a country that, you know, I had, didn't ever had the British class divisions and never integrated them in the French ideas of themselves until we did. And what happened, and that's more of a problem, is that, and actually everywhere, it's the intellectual, a certain type of intellectual class, the teachers, the civil servants, what David Cameron at times called the sharp-elbowed middle classes, but those who believe in educating their children who are winning. And the French system was never a system of, you know, state schools that were sink schools and, and, and elite schools that gave you a feeder to the best universities. We don't work like that. The best tuition in France to this day is not private. The best high schools in France, and it's as difficult to get into them as it is to get into Eton, but it is entirely based on merit, which it, I understand is now also true of 21st century British public schools. And that system favoured the sons and daughters of the, the ruling classes. And the ruling class are not rich. The ruling classes have power. They don't care. You know, they will, the many will come at one stage afterwards. But the French ruling classes have access to the best places. They speak the language, and the language is not an accent, but it's a way of speaking. They have the same culture. This culture is never tolerates eccentricity the way the British academic culture tolerates eccentricity. Neither do the schools. It's all the same model of little arrogant Frenchmen like Monsieur Macron, who is an absolute example of how you get to the top in this country. And he is more detached than the country itself because there's nothing but his tuition and his comfortable history as the son of, a doctor, of two doctors. And all to do with he played the game with the right language, the right places, having the right ideas, producing the same term papers. And that's how you get to power in France. And, and many is an afterthought. So are we seeing a similar phenomenon in France as we've seen in the United States and in Britain recently, where you've got a decline of, and you've alluded to this, you've got a decline of religion, a decline of a potential moral values of the country. You've got the rise of the internet, the rise of social media and this huge expansion of globalization. And what you've seen in the US and in the UK is these cultural elites have benefited hugely from globalization, from free trade, from free movement of people, from mass immigration. And in the UK, you've seen people basically stagnate. Many people have been stagnating, and they felt left behind. And they voted for Brexit, and they voted for Donald Trump in 2016. Have you seen the same thing in France, where globalization has left huge amounts of people behind, and now you've got a lot of anger? 
Yes, and it's even been theorized uh, by, by geographers and sociologists, and not the fashionable ones, but a man like Guilloui and, and Louis Chauvel. And Guilloui wrote a book about peripheral France, and he didn't mean France at the borders, he meant the France that's peripheral to what's really sort of changing in the country. And you have whole swathes of a country that's bigger than Britain, it's in, in surface. And they are, you know, they're places that, again, now he's talking about the Republican and the state compact. We were a country where you could get anywhere on a train, where in the Constitution it says that every French citizen is entitled to the same uh, services. And this was true until it wasn't. And when you, when you stop trains, for instance, it's a very big thing. When you don't have transport and you need to use your car, and then some elite people in Paris tell you that your car is polluting and, and uh, it is destroying the planet, and for the sake of the planet, it will cost you much more than you know, what it's costing you right now. That's when you, when you get problems. That's what started the Gilets jaunes. It was for green taxes on cars. But in general, when you live in a place like Châteauroux, you live in a place in, in, in sort of central France, and if the factory that was making anything, widgets, you know, uh, bras, for instance, I'm thinking of a lingerie company, and they stop doing it because it's now made in Asia or it's made in, in, in Mexico or somewhere, what happens is, is, is that you don't find another job. You can't sell your flat if it owns your house, if you own it, because nobody wants it. For the most time, these people were not represented by anyone. We haven't got a Trump, and Marine Le Pen is not a Trump, and there's a logic to Marine Le Pen in that the only way she thinks she can get enough votes in our first-past-the-post two-round system is to sound more like the rest of them. So uh, it's, a, it's a sort of question in which she's losing votes from one side, but she's gaining votes from the other side. And the rest of the system is, is gripped in ways that the English system isn't gripped. What's fascinating about, about what happened in Britain recently is that say what you like about Boris Johnson. He has managed to brought, bring back into the big tent of the Conservative Party people who feel that there are politicians there who can hear them. And the French can't do that. One thing in France that's particularly unique, perhaps, that hasn't affected the US, that hasn't affected Britain in the same way, is the rise in Islamic terror attacks. And recently you've seen the teacher in France who was beheaded for allegedly showing his students a, a picture of the Prophet Muhammad. Can you talk about how these Islamic attacks have affected French discourse and how are these impacting French people's views on society, on France? The terrorist attacks have essentially reminded most people in France that, you know, we have allowed something that is not well accepted in the French system, which is to let parts of the uh, community essentially leave the community. And the, the French system is, uh, immigration system model was until about 30 years ago, assimilation. What changed in the discourse was the fact that suddenly we slid into something under François Mitterrand that we weren't too much paying attention talked about, talking about integration when we had assimilation. And assimilation was the French way in which you said to anybody, you are a Gaul. You are a French person. You go to school. Your ancestors is the Gauls. We know you were born in Mali. You know, we know you were born in Poland. We know you were born somewhere else. But you are part of the French compact and you are one of a unique, a unique country. It's something that has broken down because then the idea was there are different cultures and they should keep their cultures. And that's, we call, and it's, and I'm sorry, but this is a bit of an insult. We call this the Anglo-Saxon, the modern Anglo-Saxon, which is, you know, they are different tribes and, and we deal with the chief of the tribe and we're not really interested in what they say among their tribe. And that was not the French way at all. And we are getting to the tribe thing and it's not helped us at all. To me and to many people, I think they see separate communities across France. And you've talked about, you know, the northwest region, the suburb of Paris. Are we having this sort of situation where you've got basically groups of people from one country who won't integrate into the French system in particular areas in Paris and dotted around France? Have you got these sort of ghettoized systems in France now? We do, although uh, Eric Guilhuille, the geographer I was talking about earlier, points out, and he's done the, the statistical studies, that if you take those ghetto département places, everybody talks about Saint-Saint-Denis, which is the number of the département, is 93, and people talk about the 9-3. But he says that what happens is you've got lots of people who do integrate, and the minute they do integrate, they leave the ghetto, because it's a horrible place. What you have is more of an entry sauce than a ghetto. But still, yes, we have French Bratfalls. We have, you know, we have places where people are ghettoized. And 
And, you know, the, the postcode is also something that looks bad on a resume, that sort of thing. So those exist. Lots of money is thrown at that. It's not terribly efficient. But I mean, I see every day in my work, in sort of my work, in, in sort of everyday people I meet, I see lots of integrated immigrants. But it doesn't take that many to create a real problem. And it doesn't take that many to make the lives of the people who live in the same area terrible. And then you had the onslaught of, of radical Islam, which was something that was planned, organized, broadcast by the internet, broadcast in various ways, and uh, by people who had a, an entirely different aim. And they seduced lots of young people because they were not very happy and they were told by everyone, including the French system, that they should speak Arabic and that the French state was treating them terribly, which, honestly, I've been in, in, in poor places in America. Poor in France is not poor like, uh, like poor in America. You can get, you know, you're, you still can see a doctor. You, you, you still have, have council housing. It's not a very good life, but it's nothing like those people in, 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 in the outskirts of Detroit I saw at the times of the crisis of the car industry. The houses were being repossessed. Their furniture did not exist anymore. They couldn't go and see a doctor or even their children because it was too expensive. And they were living essentially with a mattress and a, a gun in empty cardboard houses. That's, that's an entirely different thing. And we, we still get enough subsidies that people can live not terribly well, but they can live within the system. They can get, you know, sort of uh, old age pension against that's not glorious. But it's nothing like places in the first world where people are really poor. But you have got separate communities living in sort of bubbles within Paris and within France, who you've alluded to there, don't support France or don't feel French. We have those minorities, and they are minorities, and members of the same minority are furious about saying that those minorities uh, represent them. I have Moroccan friends and, in France, and, 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 you know, and they go from uh, people I, I work with, with in the French media to, to my, my wonderful neighboring grocer, and they say, these people are not us. These people are bad people. In our country, we know what we would do with these people, which is absolutely amazing. But uh, we, we have those minorities, they don't feel integrated. They don't feel French. Uh, they, uh, you know, you will see them very visibly in occasions like usually football games where they come with the Algerian flag, for instance. And of course, the, the pushback from your normal French person, why are, they, why are they not singing the Marseillaise? Why are they cheering on the, um, the Algerian team, for instance? This happened when uh, Lionel Jospin was prime minister, so at least two decades ago. And, and the prime minister just walked out, walked out of the stadium mid-game rather than uh, sort of listening to people booing the Marseillaise and, and waving the Algerian flag. I don't think a French politician would do this today. They would ignore the existence of this. I want to take you to 2015 because this seems like a crucial year for what's going on in France now. So obviously you've got the Charlie Hebdo attacks and then you've got the Bataclan theatre attacks, which, you know, these awful Islamic terrorist attacks, which were, um, you know, killed hundreds of people in, in Paris and in France. What has happened to the French psyche after those attacks? Now, I want you to talk about Macron because he's been particularly recently more hardline on radical Islam than Boris Johnson has ever been, you know, and this and Boris is sort of represented by many in the media as this sort of radical guy on the right, whereas in fact, I think he's more liberal than Macron is on these issues. So how did 2015 change the French psyche towards Islam and towards radical Islamic terrorist attacks? I, I like to take issue with Macron, because the thing about Macron is that he says radical things in every direction. He also has said that Marshal Pétain should be honoured as a great soldier of the First World War. He has said that France committed uh, crimes against humanity in Algeria. I mean, he says anything to anyone all the time. There's a very amusing cartoon in which you've got the Macron bingo, and it starts with extreme left and goes to the extreme right. And he said it all, and these are quotes. So he is extreme in talk. He certainly is not extreme in acts in anything, but he is somebody whose mentality is the mentality of the top Mandarin in the French system. Somebody who's entirely lived, he's, I mean, he's a hydroponic system. He's not lived in the real life. He's entirely lived in a system that he knew uh, how to operate and that brought him to the top of, of uh, a sort of separate planet. So he says what he thinks that the rest of the people want to hear and he gets it wrong constantly. His declarations on Islam and when he says this, when he tries to drive by uh, drive into Parliament the uh, anti-separatism bill. I agree with what he says in the anti-separatism bill. He said things about Islam that were needless at times. 
But essentially, there's no, there's no hinterland to him. He's entirely Potemkin village in terms of ideology. He doesn't have an ideology. He is willing to make compromissions with almost every kind of idea, but he, he will just say it because he's, he's looking for votes or he's looking for approbation or he's looking for good polls. And so if you take someone like Francois Hollande, for whom I did not vote, Francois Hollande was much more consistent about uh, the danger of radical Islam, the danger of, uh, of fractures in French society. And in that respect, in terms of the reaction to the Bataclan, in terms of the war in Syria, Francois Hollande was characteristic. He was the old last person of the old left and he helped destroy it because it was a question of after, après moi le déluge. But in terms of Macron, the thing about Macron is Macron will just say about anything. He will invite rappers uh, to, I mean, to sing at the Elysee who say things about raping Marine Le Pen, which is something that is not acceptable. This we were talking about a very special phenomenon, which I dearly hope will not happen in French politics again. And it's a politician who's entirely grown within the system and, and doesn't have real beliefs. That's really separate from the rest. So that's Macron's reaction. You know, you're basically saying he'll say whatever to get yes. votes. What about the French people? What did the French people, and I know that's really a massive generalization because obviously not all French people think the same, but generally what happened to France after those attacks in 2015? Was there a huge backlash? Was there a huge reaction or did things remain relatively the same? There was, in the nation, there was a huge, huge, massive backlash. There was a huge feeling of togetherness against the barbarians. And the barbarians included all French citizens of all colors. I mean, I was at that demonstration in, after the murders at Charlie Hebdo, and one of my, I, one of my friends was murdered, and, and colleagues, because I work on a French a television program that employs the Charlie Hebdo cartoonists, and we still do, and the, the ones who are surviving are still coming with us, come with our two you know, security policemen. But there was this huge reaction in which people uh, sort of, Two million people demonstrated. People said, no, this is France working to fight against us. It was also something very specific in France that they attacked. They attacked young people. They attacked cartoonists. And France, which is a very conformist country, has got one area of nonconformity. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. And it is cartoons. And, and the history of French cartoons is savage, much more savage than anything anywhere else in the world. And it's existed for centuries. That was also something that was in, within the French tradition. At the burial of one of the, um, uh, of the Charlie Hebdo cartoonists, Tignus, was the justice minister, the, justice, the former justice minister, had, is a, a black woman from the West Indies. Uh, she is hard left. And she came because she was friends with the people of Charlie Hebdo because she was within that French compact. And you can see her sort of embracing the family and crying. That was not for the cameras. And she had been caricatured on the cover of Charlie Hebdo as, as a monkey. And the caricature was a caricature of what the National Front was saying about her and what she was like. And everybody in America 
said, look how racist the French are. And the, the woman who was supposed to have been victimized by that understood the, still the national compact, and she was there to bury her friend crying. And that's really something that people outside France did not get at all. You had, you had cops on the roofs, threw out snipers and security during that demonstration, and we were shouting, merci la police, which is not really something that the French say most of the time. So there was this huge unity and this huge feeling, which I think still exists. You, to this day, you've got people with their avatar on, on social media with a French flag. And really, there's been a battle between the soul of the people, and I think you can generalize. And you've, been a, you've had a battle with lots of activists and, and fashionable thinkers who started saying that, you know, uh, you cannot criticize the Prophet Muhammad because you cannot criticize religion. And the entire history of France from Voltaire on is about criticizing religion. And, and that's a difficult thing because we see that there's been a kind of intellectual cowardice more than actual physical cowardice of the French. Again, you know, uh, one of the cops that was killed the day of the Bataclan, you know, several of them were, were, were French people with skin of a different color from white. I want to ask about Samuel Paty. So this was a French teacher who was beheaded recently because he showed his, his students a picture of the Prophet Muhammad. In the UK, we've had a similar, nowhere near to the, to the same extreme where this chap was beheaded, but to an, a similar situation in Batley recently where you had a teacher, again, who showed a picture of the Prophet Muhammad to his students, and he's now in hiding um, yes. because of threats to his life and to his, and to his family's life. But in the UK, there was basically no reaction to this. People sort of completely ignored it, almost completely ignored it, particularly in the media. This was a tiny story. Can you talk about the reaction in France to the death of this teacher, Samuel Batty, compared to the reaction in the UK to the one, you know, this was only a couple of months ago in, in Batley where this teacher went through a similar experience. But as I said, he didn't die, but he's in hiding. Well, I suppose if, you know, thank God he didn't die, but I suppose if he died, there would be more of an outcry. But yes, I can't see Britain uh, uh, looking at this in the same way. And uh, beheading a teacher is essentially really beheading one of the main characters of the construction of the Republic. You know, killing a teacher is about the worst thing you can do. And killing a teacher, trying to express the reality and the history and the depth of the Republic at a time when culture is immediate and, and very shallow is also something that I think resonated very much. And the fact that one of his pupils first lied about the cause because she wasn't there, she was playing truant, and that then either she or friends of hers went and literally cased the joint, went to the teacher's home, gave his name to the people, helped the attacker who came from somewhere else to find him and kill him. That was terrifying. They called a hit, basically, on this man. And these, these little sort of, you know, uh, uh, desocialized children essentially made the murder possible, like, just like, you know, child soldiers in Africa. The whole thing and the conditions and the fact that it happened in a French school, that was terrifying. And you've got lots of French teachers who come and who say, I was scared, I'm scared. To this day, they come and again, they're, they're not killed, thank God. So not being killed, this happens. And this was also a horrible shock to the country, but also this feeling that we haven't managed to assimilate those children who have French nationality. Their parents possibly also have French nationality from birth. The grandparents came over sometimes. Some, some of them, it's more recent. But the idea that this whole breakdown, that the country broke down, this was a country where, you know, the, the Home Secretary in 1974 uh, was a, a, a Polish immigrant, and his family were Polish immigrants, Michel Poniatowski. This is something that is not French. And also the horror of decapitation and, and the desensitization of, 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 the, of the children. That is something that really shocked the country tremendously. But killing Father Hamel, and it's not because uh, the assailant didn't try, that he didn't manage to sort of, you know, separate his head from his body. I mean, he was trying to decapitate him either. And all of this they get on television and uh, on, on, on the internet. All of this they get on the internet and they get from people grooming them in various sort of chat shows. Is there a feeling that France is under attack? I mean, you've got your major institutions, you've got Charlie Hebdo, you know, this, the satirical magazine, the cartoons, you've got a teacher, that one of these pro professions that you rightly say is, is so valued in France. You've got priests, you know, the Catholic religion, another major uh, part of French, you know, French psyche and, the French, and French culture. All of these things are being attacked. So do, do, do French people feel like there is 
a sort of attack on them right now? I think yes. I think people will not, and that's strange for us French, will not theorize it. But if you look back and you ask them to look back, they will say yes. But it's more, you know, life is falling apart. Why is life falling apart? And why, you know, are the words not followed through with, with sort of proper policy, you know, proper sort of uh, justice? And we've got all the problems of a country with, you know, with a huge uh, debt and stuck into an economic sort of doldrums in which we've got a justice system where they haven't got enough man hours, where they haven't got enough equipment, where they haven't got enough prisons, where the conditions in the prisons are quite frankly pretty horrendous uh, with overpopulation, where the population of the prisons is largely Muslim. Not entirely, of course, but there's a disproportion of representation and you try and tell people, look, this is much more a question of class than a question of ethnicity. But still, uh, ethnicity becomes class in, in some, some areas. And there's the feeling that politicians talk, but they can't make this happen. And it's, it's, it's unsuperable. And, and that leads also to a fragmentation in politics. And the fragmentation in politics is sort of bringing the final touch, if you'd like, in the, the feeling that many people in France feel is, you know, why are things not working? Let's talk about politics. And I want to talk about the presidential election next year. Who are the main actors in this election? Who are the main people running? Who are the people who are likely to win at this moment in time? So you've got Le Pen, you've got Macron, but can you talk about some of the more obscure people in British, from the British point of view? Who are the main actors in this presidential election next year? What Macron did with this sort of splintered political scene when he arrived out of nowhere in 2016 to be elected in 2017 was to go with his shopping trolley and essentially pick and cherry pick people left and right to bring into, uh, you know, it was the government of all the non-talents, essentially. He brought all sorts of compatible people who would not be forceful enough that they would threaten him, a completely inexperienced politician. And he said, this is beyond right and left. This is en même temps. At the same time, you can be this and you can be that. And he won in 2017, essentially because for the French, we talked earlier in this discussion about how the French do not like their state, but they respect the French apparatus. They think that French, the French civil service is competent. The French are, you know, they wanted to kick out the incumbents. It's the populist reaction all over Europe. But at the same time, what they want out of what could be called populism is very different from what the British would want or Trump voters want. What the French wanted is essentially the French state, but competent again, please. You know, we want public services. We want, we want the state to take care of us. And that's, that's the tradition of this country. We want selfless civil servants. We want, that's what we want. And therefore, between Marine Le Pen, who was populism and not terribly efficient from all accounts and terrible during the one debate she had with Macron and the civil servant who was 25 years younger and whom the others hated. You know, it was the expression on the face of uh, the right and the left seeing Macron that sort of clinched it for him. He was, he was really, I mean, he was really annoying the others so much. It would be nice to be poke in the eye and vote for him. And he would be competent since he was a civil servant by trade. And this was actually not realized. So I think he's, he's, not, he's not going to have that voting sort of surge for him at the same time. But still, you have lots of people who say he's the only personality we tried and tested. And uh, the others are either wishy-washy or not terribly interesting or not inspiring. And then you've got Marine Le Pen. And Marine Le Pen is less scary nowadays. But she also appears to be unbelievably incompetent. Her party, which was founded by her father 50 years ago, with the help of François Mitterrand, who wanted a party to take votes from the right-wing opposition, they haven't transformed it into a real political party. They haven't got the structures, they haven't got the local grassroots. There's a, a huge amount of nepotism going on in that party. There's a lack of competence because whenever someone is competent enough and is not part of the Le Pen family, a member of the family, they get kicked out. On the left of the party, like Florian Philippe, on the right of the party, like uh, an, another of the former companions of Le Pen, they get kicked out. So you've got this outfit, which is basically a family concern. And on the other side, you've got the man who's been president for five years and 
the country has not entirely collapsed. You can see how enthusiastic people are about politics. You know, you've got someone tr truly incompetent. You've got someone who's rather unpleasant and not doing what he said, but he talks all right. So to sum it all up, you've got the socialists who are on six or seven percent. You've got the Republicans who are relatively bland. Is it Breton? Is, uh, he's the, their leader. And then you've got Macron, who seemed to have failed the, his task to repair the state. Yes. You've got Le Pen, yes. who's extremely incompetent and her whole party is in chaos. But there is a chap who you've mentioned in your articles recently, and he is a right-wing commentator. He is being compared to the French Jordan Peterson. Could he be the sort of stalking horse, the dark horse in this race? It's more complicated. I'll get back to Eric Zemmour in a second. On the right, it would be interesting if the Republican Party had an acknowledged leader, and that was Gravier Bertrand. This is absolutely not the case. And you have to realize that you don't need to be an MP to be in the cabinet with the result that the party leader in the cabinet, in the, in the, in the, in, in the, par in parliament is never almost never the, the president. And that also means that there's less clarity in the French, in the French system. Uh, yesterday, Valérie Pécresse, the president of the uh, Ile-de-France region where Paris is, has said that she's also running. She is equally bland in a different way from uh, Xavier Bertrand. They have at least two or three more Republican candidates. They talk about having a primary. What they call a primary is not the American system. It's something in which you know, whoever wants to vote in the party will vote. This is how we got François Fillon as a candidate uh, in the Republican Party in 2017. And that was essentially because also within the party, they wanted to sort of, you know, push back against the, 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 the big beasts of the past. So you've got a very vague situation. We still do not know who the Republican candidate is going to be. Um, Bertrand, probably quite rightly, declared himself early because he figured that the publicity would give him a boost, which it has. But people are not especially enthusiastic about him. Uh, and so you, if the Republica had a, a, a sort of a, a forceful leader, you know, not Sarkozy, but somebody who would have the sort of, who would shine as much as Sarkozy did in, in, in uh, 2027, the Republican Party would be in, very, in a very good position. Right now, the Republican Party is entirely in, in a difficult position in a country where if you add polls, the votes in, and, and poll responses is overwhelmingly conservative. It's not the way you mean by conservative in Britain, but it's a country that identifies more with the right than the, with the center right than with the left. And still, they're not capable of fielding a proper candidate. And within the Front National, still polls one third of the vote, more or less. There are people, again, when you take polls for the second round, assuming that Marine Le Pen is running against a number of candidates, she's winning against some of those. She's winning against Paris Mayor Anne Hidalgo, who has led a very forceful green-right coalition in Paris now for seven years. She wins against one or two candidates whom I forget, and that tells you how memorable they are. Again, you know, the whole field is atomized, like, you know, Welbeck is quite rightly the person who describes France best today. France is atomized in so many ways. But on the right, Marine Le Pen is trying to be all things to all conservative voters, so acceptable to the hard right of the Republican Party, but she's no longer acceptable to the real sort of, you know, the people who would be IFD in Germany, for instance, or Trump voters. She doesn't want to be Trump. She wants to be Ivanka Kushner becoming president. That's a very different thing. And she, she um, was criticised, wasn't she, in a, in a debate for not being strong enough on law and order by Macron's minister, right? Macron's uh, home minister is a very inspired pick. He's a former Républicain. He might go back to the Républicain. He's called Gérald Moussa Darmanin, that's his second name, because he is a grandson of a, a, an Algerian uh, Arki who fought with the French in Algeria. And he is very hardline. He's our pretty Patel in many ways. He was in a debate about law and order with uh, Marine Le Pen, and he told her that she was too soft on crime, that her policies and what she advocated and against radical Islam specifically was too soft, which is not something that has helped her. I'm not sure it's something that's helped him, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it has really been a, pro a problem for her. Her father has been criticizing her in the background. Her father is 93, and he's still active. She fired him. She kicked him out of the party for you know, the minute he said something again, of the uh, you know, anti-Semitic that he said before, she sees the occasion to see to say, "Look, I'm not my father. I'm not a provocateur. I don't have horrible beliefs. Uh, vote for me." But it doesn't work that way. Has she got any shot at winning this thing next year? I think yes, she has a shot at winning this thing. It would need a specific configuration. She also would need to sort of you know get her act together, which is a big if. 
It also would be interesting if a, a new candidate that's appeared on the right, uh, a French journalist who's quite sort of a constructed product of the hard, French hard right, Éric Zemmour, runs against her in the first round and doesn't poll enough to get in the second round because then his voters very probably would go to Marine Le Pen. But he can also destroy her and make it a Macron-Bertrand second round. We do not know. Recently in France, they've had regional elections. Both Le Pen and Macron didn't do very well. The mainstream parties, the Republicans and the Socialists, they kept their seats. But the interesting thing I think about those elections was this. The election turnout was extremely low. Why was that? Are French people disillusioned with politics or are they angry? I think it's a combination of being the French being uh, all of these things, angry, disillusioned with politics, the election happening at the time of COVID, which is a really a big thing. Also, the fact that regional elections, people don't exactly know who they vote for. They vote for region uh, uh, sort of councillors, they vote for a département councillor, they vote for all sorts of uh, regional things. The region now in France has got powers and has got budgets, but it's not exactly the same thing. And those people who will vote in regional elections are people who actually identify with a party. And therefore, there's this incredible sort of boost it gives to uh, incumbents, because these are people who have known these people for some time, they identify with the party, and neither Macron nor Le Pen have got grassroots, really. Should Britain be worried about Macron leading into this election next year? Should Britain be worried about Macron's actions because Britain's left the European Union? I think to some extent, but I don't think it's the election that does it. But yes, I would also say that you British do French baiting all the time. It's a national sport. It's amusing. Someone as clever as Jacques Delors made, you know, made jokes of it that actually made him more popular. But by and large, we do not think about Britain and France a tenth of the time that the British seem to think about France. We, we've become this wonderful figure of a position and, you know, sometimes farce, sometimes a hatred and most of the time jokes. But the French way is the British come in conversation from time to time, but we don't understand you. And you spend your holidays in France and not many of us spend our holidays in Britain. We are very different animals. So I think the comparison, and I think it's a good thing in the case of Macron, is not as strong. But more than just being against Britain, I would say Macron certainly doesn't understand the British, doesn't he speaks grammatical English, but he doesn't speak English as a language. And certainly he campaigned in 2017 on Europe. There were as many blue and gold flags distributed at his rally so that they could be waved uh, than French tricolors. And, and his entire thing has been, I am King Europe. And now that Angela Merkel is stepping down in September, so basically in a few weeks, he wants to figure as the, the personality who, who is going to embody European will. He was extremely happy that the negotiator for Brexit was a Frenchman and who, incidentally, is nowhere in the presidential race so far. I think, yes, to a, some extent, he's not going to help, but I think he would not have been helpful anyway, because there's this feeling of people who are within the European, the EU compact, that it must be incredibly difficult for somebody to leave the European Union uh, so that you know others are not tempted, but also because you are leaving the area of good, right, and beautiful things. I mean, it's something that is between politics, ideology, and religion, to some extent. And in that respect, it's, he's a worry, but he would always have been a worry. Was Macron jealous of post-Brexit Britain's vaccine success? Well, Macron made a terrible choice at the beginning of the vaccines, and that was to go slowly. And this was now admitted, it's come out in, in minutes, not many minutes, most of it is behind doors on Conseil de Défense. Uh, and hidden from view uh, on purpose. But still, we now know that there were polls on anti-vaxxers in France and Macron decided not to take a strong political decision, but to, to, to sort of vaccinate very slowly in January in order to, you know, diffuse uh, uh, bad impressions about side effects. And he just gave strength to the anti-vaxxers. And of course, at the beginning, the whole language was the British will be our guinea pigs, the British are adventurous, that you know, Boris Johnson is playing, tying with the lives of the Britons, and look at how dismally they performed against COVID beforehand, which the, the bit about performing badly beforehand was quite true. But essentially, there was anger that the reality did not fit 
his idea of what, you know, what things should be like. And, and Boris Johnson, whom he doesn't understand really, is vilified in France, and, and the word is not too strong, by the elites who say that he's a buffoon, he's a Trump, you know, all the things that you say for Boris, about Boris somewhere else but cubed, he's, a, he's lying to people, he, and, and all of this is sort of put together. And they, then they look at an election victory giving him 80 seats in Parliament in a first-part-of-the-post system. And they don't believe it, and they say it's because people are stupid and they vote for him and he's tricked them. That is not the way to create sort of proper understanding. There was a French feeling, and that's especially considering that this is, like always in France, a government of technocrats, there was a feeling that Britain had not well prepared for Brexit. And that, the perception is probably accurate, that there had been reports from Michel Barnier who said, I mean, I saw a delegation of the Tory party at the time of Theresa May coming into my office in Brussels, and they were quarrelling among themselves instead of coming there you know, ready, loaded for bear and ready to shoot. And uh, so there's a combination of perception of things that are true, and there's also a complete misunderstanding. And in, in terms of Macron, the fact that this succeeds where it doesn't work for him, I think there's somewhere there, there's a narcissistic wound. Opinion polls have shown that Boris Johnson is the most popular politician in France. So have these perceptions changed because of the vaccines and because of, you know, Boris Johnson's huge majority and everything else? First of all, that was one poll, and it was a really interesting poll. And, you know, what do you know of him? And they all knew of him. 85%. That is really a big deal in France. They couldn't know, they couldn't name other leaders. And uh, second, it was, you know, what do you think of him? Is he sympathique or is he not sympathique? And 51% said, yeah, I think good things about him. The one thing that the French perceive, and I, it's not like voting for him, you know, he'd have to come and campaign and it would be interesting. But the perception, and that is interesting, is that uh, he understands people, he has a sense of fun, he has the common touch or, you know, the Boris way that reaches the parts that other politicians don't reach, that was something that the French got to. And real, you have to realize that they don't hear his voice. Now, I leave it up to you to decide whether hearing actually the way he speaks is going to be good or bad, but he's always dubbed in French. You never hear his voice because he doesn't speak French. Although the times he spoke in French at French television, people liked it, of course. They, there's a perception that here is somebody who forges, he's everything that Macron is not. He's somebody who will sort of forge his way through with a big smile. He's a bit of a chancer and people, contrary to impression about the Frenches, they look at somebody doing it and they think this is, we don't have this at home. This is interesting. We like this. But I think the optimism is also something that we've never had in politics for a long time and they like that. Is France becoming more Eurosceptic? Could we see a Frexit anytime soon? I don't think you can see a Frexit anytime soon. Frexit doesn't poll anything. It's the fringes, politicians who advocate Frexit, poll one or two percent. But what you find in France is more doubt about the ever closer union part of the European project. And the last thing that where it manifested itself was the last week, a ruling on 15th July of the European Court of Justice about the fact that members of the military are employees, except in very specific cases, deployment and operations, but uh, that they are entitled to employment law as per the 2003 directive on, on work and, and, and especially time, uh, work time. And the French are looking at this as, you know, the, the French are proud of their army. Uh, contrary to the jokes in Britain, the French army is actually very tough. And uh, we've more or less been holding Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, together for the past 20 years. The two, actually, the two effective armies in, in, in Europe are the French and British army. And the relationship, I, I know about this, is very good between the French and the British military, uh, beyond the jokes, actually, and great respect from either side. And the French said, you know, are you nuts? What is this complete nonsense? And there was this extraordinary interesting sort of attitude where you had a socialist politician, now the defense minister for Macron, the former prime minister, Edouard Philippe, who comes from the Républicain, a former finance minister of Jacques Chirac and Nicolas Sarkozy, who all wrote the leaders in, in French newspapers and saying, how dare you do this to the French army? How dare you sort of decide that soldiers need not train hard and, and be exposed to hardship and difficulties in order to be a, a hard army that wins war? Uh, that was possibly the thing that led France even more towards a doubt about the general sort of conditions in which Europe is being sort of pushed. We remember the time when Jacques Delors was the president of the commission. Jacques Delors wanted a lean administration with few bureaucrats. He was effective and he was also pretty humble. 
and uh, the current lot are neither lean nor humble, and the French noticed that. Thank you so much. That was absolutely fantastic. Fascinating. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know via the Apple Podcasts app.